here with us, and um, we can partake of communion together and study God's Word. Uh, a few announcements for you. Uh, first of all, the Super Bowl party is going to be today at the bridge. For you of you who don't know where that's at, that's our, uh, our, our youth center. We start on Main Street, 310 Main Street, and um, uh, the, the, the doors will open at 3 o'clock. What time does the game start? Does anybody know? What they said. I think it's 4.30. And, and I think it starts at 4.30 Eastern? Now, 6.30 Eastern, 4.30 our time. Just be there at 3 today, our time, and bring lots of good food to eat and share with everybody, please. So hope you guys can make it. Um, it's a great place to be able to be as a family. Uh, lots of games and activities that the kids can do, or even if you're not a football fan and you're wanting to bring a friend or a neighbor, there's lots of time to hang out and fellowship there at the bridge. So please, please come and uh, be a part of that. Also, I saw, I was looking at the list, many of you have signed up for the, the, the 2017 church direction and planning meeting and dinner that will be next Sunday at 6 p.m., um, I'm grateful for those who have signed up. If you've not yet signed up, please do so, so I can prepare for the, for the right amount of people and the right amount of food. They'll be here at the church in the sanctuary. We'll set up the tables and the chairs and um, get to share with you um, a really cool direction, I believe, that God's uh, taken us in this next year and the opportunities that it affords us as a fellowship. So, and to be able to give praise to God for what he's done in 2016 and, and where he's taken us in 2017. Also, one thing's coming up on February 18th. The On High Ministry is going to be doing another snowshoe hike, and I, I do believe there's a sign-up sheet for that as well. So sign up at the, on the information counter in the foyer for all of those things, and I uh, hope to see you guys this afternoon. Uh, for now, please open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. Better turn there myself. We've been studying through the book of Genesis for a little while now. This marks the halfway point of uh, the book of Genesis. And so however long it's taken us to get to this point, just a few weeks, probably take us that much time to get through the rest of it. On Wednesday evenings, we've started a study through the book of um, James. And um, I'm really excited about it. Um, Curtis has taken a, a break from Wednesday evenings. He finished the book of Hebrews. We did the introduction to James last Wednesday, and we'll be going through the five chapters of James until we get to the very end verse. And um, it's, been, it's been dubbed the, the, the New Testament uh, book of Proverbs, the book of James. And man, talk about practical application for everyday living. That's it. And I was sharing with the, with the church who came on, uh, with the group that came on last Wednesday, that it's really about spiritual maturity. That's the underlying message. To, to grow up, James is calling us to do that. And there's all these markers of, of a spiritually mature Christian. And man, when you go through that, I don't know if you were here on Wednesday, but as I, as I studied through that and as I even taught it, again, looking at those, those markers of a spiritually mature Christian, you know, someone who is a peacemaker, someone who can control their tongue, it's like, okay, I got a long ways to go, God, please do a work in me. And so, but in that is, is the answers as well and the direction and the encouragement. And so 
If you don't normally come on Wednesdays, I would challenge you to do so. It's a really refreshing time in the middle of the week to get recentered and refocused and to have some fellowship. It's a lot um, more laid back, kind of a living room style, small group kind of feel to it. So come please be a part of it. And um, if you have to move away from faraway places that you move to, to come and be a part of it, you're more than welcome to move back and do that. Just saying, Troy and Janelle. All right, Genesis chapter 25. Last week, um, when we studied through the first 18 verses of this chapter, we saw how all the events, even those we're going to study through today, the rest of this chapter, all the events are really rooted and connected by the accounts or the, the record of Abraham's death. And we've been following the life of Abraham and this man who lived a life of faith for, for many weeks now, and we've, we've, we've seen some really cool things. But in this chapter, his death is recorded. And as we, we connect all these things, or all these things are surrendered around his death, if you remember, the, the first, first thing that we were told about at the very beginning of this chapter is that Abraham had another wife, took another wife, a woman by the name of Keturah, um, after his wife Sarah had died. And in telling this, this it, 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 it accounts or gives a genealogical record of her six sons or the six sons that Abraham had with her. And each of these sons are, 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 are mentioned by name or accounted by name. In addition to this, we've seen that Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, is spoken of for the first time since having been sent away um, with his mother by Abraham into the wilderness. And um, that was, if you do the math and figure it out, uh, when that happened and when Abraham passed away, how old he was, that was 70 years ago. There's a 70-year period of time that's taken place since then. And, and, and it appears that Ishmael's been nowhere around Abraham or Isaac during that time, but there's this cool picture we talked about last week of just reconciliation and restoration that, that appears to have taken place in this as, as we see that his return was in order to help his brother Isaac bury their father Abraham in the cave of Machpelah, where his first, where his first wife Sarah uh, had been buried. And with this mention of Ishmael, um, his 12 sons, who in fulfillment to what God had promised to Abraham, have become 12 princes over 12 nations. And they are also accounted to us by name. Yet as these sons of Abraham, the, those who are, who are mentioned by name and others who are not, as it speaks of maybe other concubines that Abraham had, um, and these sons and all of their descendants as they are accounted, we see that it's in contrast for us to Isaac and his descendants who we begin reading about here today in chapter uh, in, in verse 19. That's where we're going to pick back up. And, and, and this is revealed to us when we consider verses 5 and 6, which tells us that even though Abraham had given gifts to all of these sons of his, those who are mentioned and others who aren't mentioned by name, we're told that while he was still alive, he sent them away from Isaac. Eastward, it says. And... Um, in doing so, in sending them away, it says that Abraham gave everything that he had to his son Isaac. And Abraham did this because God, back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 21, had made it very clear that Isaac and his descendants are who he, God, he, would establish his everlasting covenant with. It was the son of promise. And the point is, is Isaac was to be the heir of something more than just the wealth that Abraham, Abraham had amassed, more than just the cattle and the goats and the livestock and the servants and all of these worldly 
worldly things. He was to be an heir of something more. And so being the heir that God had promised to Abraham, um, Isaac and his descendants were the sole inheritors, not any of the other sons of Abraham, but they alone were the sole inheritors of the promises that God had made to Abraham. A promise, first and foremost, to be a shield, God said. Abraham, I'll be your shield. A shield of protection for them. This was, this was handed down to Isaac. In addition to this, a, a, a promise of land, the land of Canaan. A promise to make them a great and mighty nation. And a promise to, to bless all the other nations of the earth through them. This was the greater portion of the inheritance that Isaac was to receive. And as we read on and are told about Isaac and his descendants in verses 19 through the end of this chapter and, 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 and even more into the book of Genesis, is what we see is, is there's some very similar things between Abraham and Isaac. You know, it's kind of that, that maybe that adage, the, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. You've heard that before? That, that's kind of the same with, with Abraham and Isaac. And in doing so is we see that there's some similarities between them. Also in this chapter, we see the importance of the birthright in regards to an heir and the inheritance. And also, the, the true value of the inheritance which Isaac's sons would receive through him. And so with that, if you'll follow along with me in verse 19, it says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan, Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So, verse 24, when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. I wonder what our names would be if, if someone looked at us at birth and gave us a name. Could you imagine? <laughs> Afterwards, his brother, verse 26 came out, and, and he had took hold of Esau's hill, so, he, so his name was, was Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was very weary, and Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as is of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? He might have been a little overreacting. Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, 
Again, I ask God that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us and upon me, Lord, as I, as, as I teach your word and as we receive, God, your truths. I pray that you would give us the ears to hear and the hearts to receive. And God, the will and courage and strength to apply these truths to our lives in this world that we live in today. Father, I pray that we would find peace and comfort as your word is a guide to our feet. And God, I know that um, we are all in places, God, where there are different things going on, but yet you, Lord, have the ability to reach into each one of our lives personally and intimately where we're at and speak to us individually today. And I pray, God, that you would do that through your word, which is dynamic, which is living and powerful and sharper, Lord, than any two-edged sword. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that's struggling with trust and trusting in you, Lord, or anyone here who's feeling alone, like maybe you've forsaken them or, or, or turned away from them, I pray, God, that they would see that this is not true, that you're always there for them and by their side. I pray, God, that you would pour out hope upon us this morning. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you look back at the very beginning of, well, not all the way back to the chapter, but just like in verse 19, we have, to, we have to take where we're going in, in light of where we've been. And as we're looking at this transference of the covenantal promises that God had made to Abraham down to Isaac and then down to Isaac's sons and so on and so forth, we have to know or we have to keep in mind that God had kept and would continue to keep every promise that he had made to, to Abraham now through Isaac and his descendants. And having... Uh, been established as the rightful heir of these promises, we read on from this point forward, what we read on from this point forward, it's all about Isaac's descendants. And and I mentioned this last week, that's why when we read here in verse 19 where it says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's sons, and it goes on to say, Abraham begot Isaac, and then it's like, okay, but who did Isaac begot, and and then who did Isaac's son begot? I mean, there's not the same repetition in, in, in regards to these were his sons. And we're going to get to know more about the sons of Isaac and, 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 and the sons of Jacob and whose name was changed to Israel. And we know that from them, 12 sons were born and 12 tribes. But what, we're, what we see here is, is that we're being told about Isaac as, as, as in relationship to a genealogical account. But there's depth given, there's detail given, there's, there's important things that are being told to us. And so that's going to be the case with all of Isaac's descendants or the children of Israel. And so everything we read about from this point on is really about these descendants, who they are, what they did, and all that happened to them is God took one family from the seed of Abraham and made a mighty nation who would be a blessing to all the other peoples and nations of the earth, just like God had promised specifically through the giving of the Messiah. We know this to be true as we are on the other side of these events and we look back to those promises, to the fact that God sent us his son, Jesus. And we know that this Jesus, he came in fulfillment of these covenantal promises. But not only in fulfillment of the covenantal promises, in fulfillment of much prophecy. In order to die on a cross and rise from a grave, in order to pay our sin debt and, and, and make the forgiveness of sin and, and um, uh, the, that, that gift of eternal life available to whosoever, the Bible says, would believe and accept him as their Lord and Savior. And, and hopefully that's what all of us have done at some point in our life up to now.
And if you've not done that, if you're here this morning, if you've not yet given your life to Christ and believed on Him and confessed Him to be your Lord with your mouth, I would encourage you to do so before you leave today. In the stillness of your heart, to call out to God who sent His Son, as I said, in fulfillment of the promises and in fulfillment of the prophecies here that we read about now and going forward in the Old Testament. So as the historical focus shifts off of Abraham and onto Isaac, we're going to notice that in addition to being recipients of God's covenantal promises, Isaac and Abraham had many other things in common. And the first, and perhaps the most important, is revealed to us here in verse 21, if you want to look, where it tells us, where it says that Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, who was barren. Isaac prayed or pleaded with the Lord for his wife, who was barren. And what this reveals to us is, is, is this mic on? Can you guys hear me? Check, check. I feel like I'm shouting. Check, check, check. Check. My green light's on there. What's the problem? <laughs> check. Check. Yeah? There we go. All right. Leave me there, Seth. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. And... um like I was saying, what that reveals to us, what verse 21 is revealing to us, is that Isaac had a relationship with and prayed to the exact same God his father did. And, and this is significant when we understand the historical events that led up to Abraham being called by God and following after God and coming to the very place that he is at. Isaac could have chosen any one of the other gods that were in the land of Canaan or in Egypt, who his dad had previously gone to, to worship, to follow, and to obey. Of course, they were false gods. They were idols. And, and, and yet, what we know is that Isaac followed and prayed to the same God that his father Abraham did. And as we read and study about Isaac, it's evident that, like Abraham, not only did he follow him, he was devoted. Isaac was a devoted man of God. Nevertheless, um, what we see here is that, um, like Curtis taught last week, man, Curtis did a really great study last week on the prodigal son, and if you didn't get a chance to hear that, go online and listen to it. It's really, really, really encouraging, and he brought some, some really cool things to things to point. But as, as Curtis taught about the prodigal son, we're reminded as parents that our own devotion to God is no guarantee that our children will grow up to be devoted followers of God, like Isaac was of Abraham. Nevertheless, what we've seen, some of the things that Curtis taught and what we see here in relationship, uh, uh, the father-son relationship between Abraham and Isaac, is that we have this responsibility to teach our kids about God. We have this responsibility to train them up in the way that they should go, to, to be a, a, a godly example as we um, help them along their way in their own faith journey. Furthermore, when our kids waver in their faith, because like us, they will. Guys, our kids will waver in their faith. And, and when they do so, or even if they go astray, not all will, but some will, and, and some of your kids have gone astray. I know. I get to talk to you about it. But, but in that process, when, when our kids waver in, our, in their faith or when they go astray, you know, we're called to love them enough to always tell them tr the truth, to be praying for them, and like the prodigal son's father, to be waiting expectantly and hopefully for that day when God will restore them back to him. 
Now, in addition to serving and following after the one true and living God, Isaac, who was also like his father, Isaac was also like his father Abraham, we see here in this text, in that um, his wife, Rebekah, was also barren. Sarah was barren for, for many, many years. We read and, and we're told that was one of the struggles of faith that Abraham had as God had promised him a son. And it was actually a point that, that they had stumbled in. However, when it came to waiting on God to provide a son, Isaac, according to verse 20 here, he was 40 years old, we're told, when he took Rebekah as his wife. And according to, to verse 26, um, we see that when his sons, these twin boys, were finally born, he was 60 years old. And what we can deduct from this is that Isaac only had to wait 20 years instead of the, for the birth of his son instead of the 25 years that Abraham had waited for the birth of Isaac. And um, when you have to wait that long, I'm sure five years probably doesn't seem like, like uh, really that big of a difference. But what we see differently is that Isaac... Is that, that Abraham had passed on some wisdom to his son, that his wisdom applied in that Isaac didn't try to take matters into his own hands. See, Isaac was in the exact same situation that Abraham was in, in that there was an heir needed in order for the covenantal promises to continue to be fulfilled. Without, a, without an heir, without a son, who then would these promises that God had made to raise up a great and mighty nation and to give them a land to possess, how would those promises have come to pass? But what we see different here in that, in, in relationship to the, the contrast of the same thing and praying and reaching out to God is that, is that Isaac and Rebekah waited in faith. They didn't wait or they didn't end up taking things into their own hands. And, and, and of course, Isaac had Ishmael, his brother, as a living reminder of what stepping out of the will of God will bring forth and how waiting on God to do the work is always the best. And um, in light of this, I want to point out this. One, one cool truth that we need to glean as we look through the book of Genesis as a whole is that the book of Genesis really emphasizes to us an underlining tone or an underlining theme is really the sovereignty of God, right? Whether it's with the creation and the flood, Noah and, and calling Abraham and choosing the people that he's going to make and, and, as far as recipients of his blessing and then, and, and, and going on with the, the 12 tribes of Israel and Joseph and um, being delivered out of Egypt. I mean, the whole thing, the whole book of Genesis, all these really cool stories that are, that are accounted for us, the overlying, underlying emphasis is the sovereignty of God and, and, and specifically the sovereignty of God in relationship to the wisdom of his timing. Do you see that? The wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God in relationship to the wisdom of his timing, which, by the way, I have to confess, can often seem to us in our times of waiting to be a delay. Can it not? God's timing in, in a thing can, can, from our point of view, seem like a delay. And I wish to spend some more time talking about this, but I think it's best to first address the rest of this chapter and then then we'll jump back before we close this morning on this issue of waiting on God. So we're told that after 20 years, Rebecca finally conceived. But verse 22 tells us that she perceived something was not right with her pregnancy. So my wife never had twins, but there were times when just one baby inside her tummy looked like there was an alien in there. 
And, and I can't imagine what it must be like with two children who are going on and struggling like, like the Lord said was going on. It, it, I'm sure at times it had to be just really, really chaotic. Hands and feet popping out everywhere. Sometimes you can really make out some great detail. But she was like, something's not right with her pregnancy. So she called out to God, and she was a woman of faith and, and a devout follower and believer as well. We can see that. And, and when God answered, he really spoke something prophetic to her. In verse 23, and he revealed to her that, that two people who would become two nations were in her womb. And God, um, and, 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 um, God said that the, that the younger, he's, he's telling her this something specific, something contrary to the norm here, that the younger son would be the greater and that the older son would be the one who would end up serving him. Now, this was significant because as is culturally then and, and in many other cultures, many cultures today, the firstborn son was the rightful heir to the birthright. And my firstborn son, Riley, reminds me of that and of his siblings every chance he gets. And, and um, of course, it has a different meaning today, but he sure likes to claim that because this meant that the, that the firstborn son would receive a special blessing from his father as the father neared his own death. And in doing so, the firstborn son, as a result of, of, of that birthright, would become the rightful heir to, to, to a double portion of the, of the inheritance, a, a double portion of what his father had, as, a right, as, as well as the rightful heir to any power and authority that his father possessed. Yet, as was the case with Isaac, who was not the firstborn and was still chosen by God, Remember, Ishmael was the firstborn, but Isaac was still chosen by God to be the rightful heir. So too God had declared or decreed here that Jacob, the younger of these two boys, would be the rightful heir. And God's decree meant that Jacob would be next in line to receive all of these covenant promises that had been made to Abraham and handed down to Isaac. Now, as we begin to think about this and look at the events that transpired after the birth of these two sons, one has to wonder, I think, um, if Rebecca had spoke these things that God had told her either to Isaac or to her son Jacob or Esau. And we don't know for sure, but we are told in verse 28 that Esau, the firstborn, was loved by Isaac more and that Jacob, the younger, was loved by Rebecca Moore, and clearly these boys were very two different types of people. That's one of the other things that we're told. And even though it may appear that 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 Jacob in the in the last part of this of this chapter, it may appear that that Jacob was was bargaining for his brother's birthright in exchange for a measly bowl of stew and some bread. It may appear to us that that this was an attempt to bring forth God's will. We don't know for sure if that was what was going on. Rather, it kind of looks at Jacob like Jacob was just greedy and, and manipulating. And it's likely that Jacob was only acting at this point out of greed because we know um, that his name, which means heel catcher or deceiver, was also a testimony to his character. And as we read on about Jacob and some of the things that, that we did, we're going to see that what he does here and how he handles things is how he handles things in, in lots of situations in his life. And it really brought him to the point, this really cool point, where, where he ended up wrestling with God, right? And, and man, I love that, 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 that 
that illustration for, of wrestling with God because, because in that, Jacob, when he was done wrestling with God, would not let go. God changed his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel. And, and, and the cool thing about that is, is when we wrestle with God, often it's because God's doing a work inside of us of changing us. And God didn't leave Jacob where he was at as the heir. But even if Jacob knew what had been spoken by God, if his mom had told him, the fact that he acted apart from God bringing it to pass shows an unwillingness to wait on God. Does it not? An unwillingness to wait on God trying to bring forth God's will on his own. But on the other hand, the fact that Esau was so quick to exchange his birthright for an immediate and, and, and temporary pleasure that would pass away reveals also what kind of man Esau was. A man who cared about the immediate gratifications of life rather than the eternal things of God. And in doing so, we see that waiting for what God had to give was something that Esau also was unwilling to do. Because he was the rightful heir, according to, to being the firstborn. And um, in light of this, all of this, it's important to understand that just because God had determined to give this covenantal blessing to Jacob, it did not absolve anyone in the family, including Rebekah and Isaac, from their obligations to the Lord. In other words, each one of these players were responsible for their actions. And, and I say that because it points out a truth to us. It points out this truth that the divine sovereignty of God does not dismiss our human responsibility. Now, in regards to the issue of waiting, I want to spend a little bit of time with the rest of the time that we have really kind of focusing in, in, in on this. And, and, I, and I want to say as I preface this, that waiting on the Lord may be one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. In fact, I think for most of us, it's safe to say that waiting in general is a difficult thing to do. And I can honestly say that I don't think I've met anyone who enjoys waiting. Anyone? For example, is there anyone here who likes to wait in traffic? You just wake up in the morning and you head to work and you're just like, I sure hope there's like stoplight after stoplight of just cars waiting for me. No, I don't, I don't think so. How about in the line at the grocery store? If you didn't buy your Super Bowl snacks before church today, the odds are you're going to go after church and you're going to be waiting in line at the grocery store. How about waiting for your spouse or your doctor? And the fact of the matter is, is, is when we are waiting for these kinds of things, we, we become displeased because we find ourselves in a place where we're not in control, right? Where someone other than us or something other than, than, than that, that we can, can control is taking control. And, and, and in addition to that, we see that the waiting is, is we see that, that that waiting or the thing that they're waiting on or the time that we're waiting to be, we become frustrated because we see that it's a useless or fruitful thing. Waiting in traffic is useless and fruitless. Waiting in the grocery store line, I'm here to tell you, it's useless and fruitless. But let me tell you, when it comes to waiting on the Lord, we need to understand that it's, that it's never a useless or a fruitless thing. 
When it comes to waiting on the Lord, it's never a useless or a fruitful thing, or fruitless thing. Furthermore, we need to understand that waiting on the Lord is not just something we have to do while we wait to get what we want. Let me say that again. Waiting on the Lord is not something we have to do while we get what we want or why we wait to get what we want. Rather, waiting on the Lord is a process of becoming what God wants us to be. Waiting on the Lord is the process of becoming what God wants us to be. Therefore, what God does in us while we wait is just as important or, or, or is important as what it is we are waiting for. And I know that in some aspect of our lives today, all of us can look at that, spiritually speaking, and go, we're waiting for God on something. And understand that, that what God does in us while we're waiting is just as important as what we are waiting for. Now, before we begin to look at biblical waiting, I also want to point out um, that bibli- what biblical waiting is not, Okay? In other words, biblical waiting is not a passive waiting around for something to happen that will allow for us to escape our troubles. Okay? It's not, biblical waiting is not a fatalistic resignation. Oh well. Right? It's, it's not a way to evade an unpleasant reality. Meaning if God's called you to do something, you just don't go, well, I'm just going to wait. It's not a way to evade an unpleasant reality, nor is it simply sitting around and doing nothing. Biblical waiting is not sitting around and doing nothing. Rather, biblical waiting is first and foremost a work of patient trust. If you're taking notes, please write that down. Biblical waiting is first and foremost a work of patient trust. Specifically this, the confident, disciplined, expectant, active, and sometimes painful exercise of clinging to God. But this work of patient trust comes with the knowledge that it'll reap a reward, that there will be fruit, that it is not useless. In other words, the work of patient trust of patient trust is rooted in the belief that God knows what he is doing. So whether it has to do with a relationship Issues of finance or of health, our careers, our dreams, our church, our kids. We have to, we must abandon the idea or abandon the the attitude of don't just stand there and do something and obey God who is often telling us to stand right there and do nothing. And even then, when faced with the difficult things of life, the work of patient trust What it does is it equips us. That work that we're called to do while waiting as we patiently trust on God, it equips us and empowers us when we do this to go about the daily assigned tasks that we've been given with confidence that God will provide not only the meaning for the thing that we are in, because sometimes we go, why, in the midst of those times of waiting, and, and God will provide the meaning, but as well as the conclusion as in relationship to a fruitful harvest. From that time of waiting. Patient trust. In light of this, we have to surrender the fact that the work of patient trust means that we are giving God the benefit of the doubt. 
giving him the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he is doing. And this brings forth a second point in regards to what biblical waiting is. For when God calls us to the place of waiting on him, it's his way of seeing if we'll trust him before we are moved forward. And therefore, biblical waiting reminds us that God is in control and that I'm not in charge. Biblical waiting reminds us that God's in control and that we're not in charge. Now, when I found myself, and and, and possibly, perhaps this is true for you also, when I find myself waiting in traffic or for my kids or for my spouse, and, and I consider this issue of not being in control, I have found that there is lots of times that, that, that all I can do is watch. You ever done that? Where you're sitting on the couch, guys, waiting for your wife and kids to get ready? All you can do is watch. Go try to put your wife's makeup on for her. Doesn't work. You're left to watch, and, and, or, and you feel like you're just standing around doing nothing. It's like, come on. And, and more times than not, watching only leads to frustration, right? As I realize that the person or thing that I'm waiting for is not doing what I want them to do. However, in regards to biblical waiting, guys, watching is a blessing. It's not a frustration. Watching is a blessing as we look to God who is control, who is in control with the hopeful expectation that he's going to do something that we could never do on our own. In Psalm 130, verses 5 through 6, it says this. It says, I waited for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. You see, in biblical times, what this is speaking of is that watchman who would sit upon the wall in guard and in care of the city and the inhabitants of the city. And the watchmen were the ones who, would, who guarded the city, and in doing so, they watched for enemies who might attack at night. And, and, and as they did so, they waited for the sun to come up, the sun that brought often safety from the night. But during that time of waiting, they were alert. During that time of watching, they were alert and they were obedient and they were ready to respond when needed. Yet, when called upon, they sprang into action. But on the other hand, watchmen were not the ones who made things happen. They watched. They did not control the rising of the sun or, the, or, the, or, or did they speed up the process of the new day dawning? A watchman knew the difference between his job and God's job. So in regards to biblical waiting, we need to embrace the job of watching. Embrace the job of watching as we take on the work of patient trust. And, 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 in, and in turn, be filled with confidence and alert expectation that God will do exactly what he said he would do. Consequently, this kind of biblical waiting on the Lord allows God to do his work. 
Not only does it allow God to do His work, it allows God to do it in a way and in a time that He sees fit. And I point all this out because the struggle for a lot of us in regards to waiting is letting someone else do the work. I can't tell you how many times I've been waiting at the checkout line in Walmart fighting the urge to go behind the counter and check out the people who are in front of me, myself, because I wasn't approving of how slow the clerk was there doing the job. You ever get behind that one clerk that does more time talking than checking? So, as we wait and we watch, we have to allow for God to do His work. Which is always perfect. And allow His timing, which is also perfect, to come to pass as well. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, the prophet Habakkuk spoke about this very thing. And he said, he said, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. And he's figuratively speaking of that watching and waiting like a watchman would upon the walls. He said, I will stand at my guard post and, and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Because that's how often, that's often what we're doing is just the reality of it. It says, yet the Lord answered me. And he said, write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on the tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. God's work in his perfect timing. And now the fact of the matter is that we often become impatient while waiting on the Lord because we are watching and we don't always see the work that is being done. And that was the problem that Habakkuk was facing. We are watching and we don't always get to see the work be done. And this is why we need to remember that while we wait, as I spoke earlier, on God to do what he said he would do, he is always doing a greater work in us through the waiting. A work that is not seen sometimes until months or years later. There's a really cool illustration of this I found, and it has, it's in relationship to, to the bamboo tree, the Chinese bamboo tree. It gives us a good illustration of this because if you take a bamboo seed of the Chinese bamboo and you plant it, what, you, what, you, what you'll find out is that within a short couple of weeks, a little shoot will come out from the bulb that you planted in the ground. But all you will have for five years is a little shoot. And this shoot, it must have food and water every single day. And, and within that five-year period of time, it grows no more than one inch. But at the end of the five years, the Chinese bamboo will perform what appears to be a miraculous feat by growing as much as 90 feet tall in less than 90 days. And in light of this, one has to ask, when did the tree actually grow? Was it during the first five years or during those last 90 days? And the answer lies in the unseen part of the tree, right? All trees have what? Roots. 
And so the answer lies in the unseen part of the tree and the underground root system. And, and, and for the, during the, in relationship to the, the Chinese bamboo, during the first five years, there's this extensive fibrous root system that spreads out deep and wide within the earth, preparing to support the incredible heights that this tree will once reach. Likewise, as we actively and patiently wait upon the Lord, we can rest assured that God is working deep inside our person in order to build a strong root system, a system of faith and of love that will eventually produce a growth in us that all will be able to see. But in the meantime, as we actively wait and patiently wait, I want to encourage you with a list of ten things that we must do that God says will water and feed us while we wait. If you're taking notes, the first thing that God tells us in our times of waiting is that we must be still. Be still. Scripture speaks highly of what can happen when someone will become still before the Lord. Yet, it's often a difficult thing for us to do. In fact, if you've ever heard me teach on the passage of Scripture from Psalm 46, where it talks about being still and know that He is God, that word still from the Hebrew translates probably best to the simple phrase, chill out. And it's this idea of going home from a long, hard day of work, dropping in your easy boy recliner, putting up your feet, and just kind of sinking into it. Be still and know that I am God. And yet when we choose to be still before God, what happens is the blessing is, the blessings are immense. And this is why the Lord instructs us in Psalm 46, verse 10, saying, be still and know that I am God. Be still. The second thing that we need to do in order to grow in the times of waiting, the other work that we can do, if you will, is to be in the Word. Be still and be in the Word. You know, it's, it's tempting to spend our time of waiting in worry. I kind of mentioned that when we began. I think we have all been faced with that in that times of waiting to, 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 to enter into worry rather into the Word of God. We enter into worry rather than entering into the Word of God. And worry leads to even more anxiety and more worry and fear and, and discouragement and all other kinds of things. But if you enter into the Word of God rather into worry, by the way, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit, right? And we know that when we enter into that, what we are doing is we are arming ourselves with a spiritual weapon that can defeat that enemy of worry. Because the Word of God is a comfort a rudder, a peace that comes as we study and know what God has told us and know more about who God is. So be still and be in the word, but thirdly, be assured. In times of waiting, be assured. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he said, My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They shall not perish. No, no one can snatch them from my hand. Be assured, remember that the same God who saved our souls for all of eternity is more than able to deliver us in our present time of need, right? 
So as we continue to wait on God, be assured that the Lord, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, will never leave us and never forsake us. Be assured. How about this? Number four, be serving. In the times of waiting, be serving. Paul instructed Timothy in chapter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he said, Be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, we must stay active in times of waiting, using the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. And in doing so, as we serve others with God's love, you know what will happen? Is our heart will find it much easier to wait on the Lord. Why? Because the fact of the matter is, is when we're busy serving others, we will experience a much greater peace than those who are neglecting the gifts of the Spirit and not serving as God has called them to, simply because there is less time to be consumed with ourselves and our own problems when we're thinking about others and serving others. Be serving. It's not all about you or me in our time of waiting. Be encouraged. Number five. There are many reasons to... Remain encouraged during a period of waiting, a time of waiting. But it often requires this. Listen, the courage to remain encouraged. And, and we do so, we do this, we, 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 can, we can have that courage to remain encouraged by choosing to reflect on everything that God has done for us already in the past, Right? Remember that God's faithfulness is unwavering even when our current situation seems to be terribly confusing. Encouragement comes when we focus on our Savior's love and when we continue to trust in Him, the one who has promised to always be by our side. Take the courage to be encouraged in the Lord. Be faithful, number six. Be faithful. And here's here's the idea behind this. Don't jump out of the, the frying pan into the fire. That's kind of the mentality with being faithful. See, when you're going through a time of waiting, there's always already enough pressure during that time, during that time of waiting. You know, we don't need to add any more weight to the equation. And so it's very critical to be faithful to the Lord during the time of testing. In other words, if we're not faithful, we're being what? Disobedient. And disobedience, I don't know if you've ever been in that spot, I have, but in that time of disobedience, you know what happens? It's a heavier weight. There's, there's, more, there's more there. It weighs us down both spiritually and mentally and even physically. And so by choosing to remain faithful in times of waiting to God and his commands, you know what happens is we receive even more power, more strength from the Holy Spirit and more endurance to press on in faith and to not give up. Three more, be prayerful. Guys, I can't, I can't emphasize the, important of this, the importance of this, of actively waiting by being prayerful. You see, it's been well said that the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's will done here on earth. And waiting on the Lord isn't for the faint of heart. It requires spiritual power. And prayer is one of the best ways to receive that much needed strength to endure. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 7, he said, "Ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will be find; you will find; knock and the door will be opened to you." Prayer, be praying. 
Justin, if you and the worship team want to come up, we're going to close with these last ones. Be wise. Be wise. Here's what I mean. In my experience of waiting, I've come to realize that impatience can lead me to make foolish choices. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. But I, on more than one occasion, have come to realize that my impatience can lead me to make foolish choices. So whenever I feel rushed, or whenever we feel rushed, you know, it's very natural for us to make snap decisions that lack wisdom. There's no thought process, right? It's just like, well, i got to do this. But this is why Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16 says this. It says, be very careful then of how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And remember that one of the fruits of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5, chapter, verse 22, is patience. Be wise. Be expectant. I love this one. Be expectant. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Be expectant. In other words, be expectant as we wait upon the Lord, believing that God has a wonderful plan for our future as we wait. And in and, and, and doing so, we're believing that he has more or that he is more than able to bring whatever we're going through to pass in his perfect timing. And the reason for why we as believers can expect great things from the Lord is because he is a great and mighty and awesome God. Is he not? Last thing, be thankful. Number 10. In times of waiting, be thankful. This does not apply to the line at Walmart. Maybe it does. But but for sure in regards to biblical waiting and spiritual things. Be thankful. And the truth is, is no matter what we are waiting on God to do in our lives, we can choose to do exactly what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 tells us to do by saying, be joyful always, pray, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In closing, I want to point out to you that God has your situation, whatever it is, under control. God has it in his control. And in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, it says this. It says, The Lord is good to those who hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to do this, that we would truly see that waiting on, waiting on you isn't just sitting around with our arms folded, feeling sorry for ourselves, Lord, but you, you call us to be actively and patiently and hopefully waiting on you. And I pray, God, that as we see these truths revealed to us today, God, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, why don't you stand and we worship together.